You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Hey, thank you all so much for your kind invitation to be with you. I've been so blessed by the warm greeting and hospitality and the chance to be with you this uh, week. Um, I want to talk today about lament and why lament is a lost practice that needs to be recovered uh, in order for there to be reconciliation and hospitality. But I'll begin with a story. Um, I turned 50 years a couple of years back. I know I don't look it. Asians don't, we age very well, so Asians don't raisin, as the saying goes. So I turned 50 years old about three years ago. And when I turned 50 years old, I did what many 50-year-olds do, which is to say, I need to get physically fit. This is the year that I'm going to get physically fit. So I'm an academic researcher. I did what many academics do. We researched the topic. And so I went to one of the most important tools that the academic research has. It's called Google. You might have heard of this. So I went on Google, and I typed in, how do you stay fit? How do you get physical fitness and well-being? And it turns out there's this program called P90X. Any of you heard of this? P90X is supposed to be this exercise program that's supposed to get you very physically fit. So I did more research on this, and I asked the question, what is it about P90X that works so well? And it uses a philosophy called muscle confusion. Muscle confusion. And when I read that, I said, this is the program for me, because I really am into muscle confusion. The way that I apply it is I don't go to the gym for months and months at a time, and when I go to the gym, my muscles are really confused why we are there. And that leads to better health and well-being. Now, as I began to explore this physical exercise regimen that leads to better well-being and health, I began to ask the question, could that be also a way that our spiritual lives could grow? That our spiritual growth could also be tied into confusion and disruption? There's an NYU professor by the name of Richard Sanity. He puts it this way. Without a disturbed sense of ourselves, why would any of us ever want to change? Without a disturbed sense of ourselves, why would any of us want to change? And discipleship and spiritual growth and spiritual health, that's about growing. That's about changing for the better, not staying in the status quo. So there are moments in our lives where a, a disruption, a, a discomfort, a confusion might actually be a good thing. But here's the problem in many of our American Christian circles. We don't like confusion. We don't like disruption. We like things to stay the same. We don't want to have our church services interrupted with a pandemic. We don't want to have our nice conversations and happy conversations interrupted with conflict and difficulties. We don't want our understanding of the world that's supposed to be good and perfect with the possibility that things aren't so good and perfect. We don't like disruption. And maybe that's why many of us don't grow. So I wrote a book a few years ago about lament. It was a commentary on the book of Lamentations. How many of you have ever read the book of Lamentations? Yeah, that's about right. About five or six of you have read the book of Lamentations. How many of you have heard an entire sermon series on the book of Lamentations? Oh, one or two of you. This is one or two more than I usually get. Most people have not heard of the book or even read the book and certainly not heard a sermon series on the book of Lamentations. Why? If you know the book, you know it's one of the most depressing books of the Bible. It is a serious downer. You read through that and you're like, do I really want to be a Christian after reading a book like Lamentations? But here's maybe what Lamentations and the, and the, and the way the Bible talks about lament, why it might be important. Because it creates a disturbed sense of ourselves. 
it creates a disruption and maybe even a necessary confusion that leads to growth, that leads to transformation, that leads to a closer walk with God because of that disruption and confusion. So I want to talk today about if we're going to be a community that is going to be hospitable and we walk through that hospitality without some disruption, we will not be a hospital community. Because then all we're doing is getting people to become like us rather than creating a genuine hospitable community. And I want us to talk about lament as the entry point into that hospitality. This passage was read to us earlier today. Uh, earlier, uh, early on. It talks about the history and why lamentations needed to be written. You see here that the perception was that Israel had once been a great nation. You know the story. Under King David and King Solomon, Israel was built up as the superpower. Uh, David was a great military leader. He built up the boundaries of Israel. Solomon was a great economic leader. He built up the wealth of Israel. And so they were once a queen among the provinces, great among the nations. But those of you who know your Old Testament know that that didn't last very long. That after David and Solomon, the subsequent kings were uh, idolaters and they were disobedient and they, and they tore down the, the worship of Yahweh. And so they, because of their disobedience, because of their uh, idolatry, for generation after generation, God needed to bring judgment upon Israel. And so God brings the righteous judgment upon Israel. The northern kingdom is wiped out. The southern kingdom is wiped out. The only thing left is the city of Jerusalem. And eventually Jerusalem is torn down as we see here. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. They have no one to comfort her. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has now gone into exile. Most of you know that in the Old Testament when you see that word exile, it is the worst thing that could happen to God's people. Not only have they lost their homeland, they've lost their identity as God's chosen people. Families have been torn apart. Their homes have been destroyed. Their palace has been destroyed. Their temple has been destroyed. Everything that they held in value about their self-worth and their self-identity was taken away in the process of the exile. Exile meant that they took the prophets, the priests, the kings, the learned, the intellectuals, all the people who they said could potentially rebuild the nation of Israel, rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They took them away and sent them into Babylon. So if you want to talk about confusion, if you want to talk about disruption and talk about the worst moment in one's life history, this is that moment for Israel. This is that moment for the city of Jerusalem. They have lost everything. Everything has fallen around, around them, fallen apart around them. It's almost as if they had a pandemic, a racial conflict, an economic downturn, and a crazy election all in one year. Can you imagine that? All of these things happening at the same time, this is worse than that. Everything has fallen apart for the people of God. And how are they going to respond when these crises occurs? Well, I want to talk about the fact that there were probably two responses. There's more, but two main responses that God's people could respond when difficult circumstances arise. The first response is to run away and hide. After all, this is not what you signed up for. I didn't sign up to be persecuted. I didn't sign up for there to be difficult times. I, I signed up for good things to happen in my life, not difficult things. So at that moment you say, if God's not going to give me those good things, if my life is not going to be perfect and it's not going to be good, I'm not going to be the one in power all the time, I'm not going to be the one that has all the good things happening to me, then I'm just going to bail. I'm going to run away and hide. But the more appropriate response we want to get to is to lament, to accept Yahweh's sovereignty to accept 
the judgment and the hope and restoration of God and trust in Yahweh, not in ourselves. But let's talk about that first possibility, to run away and hide when disruption comes, when confusion occurs, when difficult circumstances come about. Jeremiah 29.4, also read earlier, is the passage that tells the people of God, you are not allowed to run away and hide. This is not what you do as God's people, to run away and hide when difficult circumstances arise. This is what the Lord says, and uh, Yahweh writes through the prophet Jeremiah to those who are in exile in Babylon. So this is a letter written to those in Babylon in exile. And he says to continue to live your life as God's people. Continue to uh, have children and to give the children away and then they should have children and continue to prosper, continue to grow, continue to increase. You don't stop being God's children just because the circumstances are difficult. You don't stop being the people of God just because you don't get everything that you want. You don't give up. You don't give in. You continue to be God's people. In fact, this uh, phrase at the end of this section is the most confounding of all. It says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I have carried you. That would have made no sense to those who were in Babylon. Now, think with me the biblical image of Babylon. What is Babylon? Babylon is the exact opposite of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of the promised land, the capital of Israel, the city of David, the city of God's peace. And what is Babylon? Babylon is Washington, D.C., Wall Street, Hollywood, and Las Vegas all rolled into one. This is the exact opposite of God's city. And here you have this bizarre passage that says, seek the peace. And every time a city is listed next to seek the peace, 99.9% .9 of the time, what city are you supposed to seek the peace of? Obviously, Jerusalem. You seek the peace of Jerusalem. It's God's city. It's David's city. It's the capital of the promised land. Seek the peace of Jerusalem. But this is one of the very few exceptions in the Old Testament where it says, not seek the peace of Jerusalem, but seek the peace of, of all places in the world, Babylon. So they're at their lowest moment in their history. They're in exile in the worst city they can imagine the worst place they can imagine. The, the world has completely fallen around them. They are completely at the end of their rope. And God says, you still are my people. And you not only have to seek the peace of Jerusalem, but now I want you to seek the peace of all places in the world of Babylon. God's people, even when we're in Babylon, even when our circumstances are the worst, most difficult imaginable, we don't get to give up. We don't get to run away and hide. I was speaking last night, though, that in American history, the church has oftentimes run away and hid when difficult circumstances arise. There was a moment in American history in the late 19th century and early 20th century, uh, all, all the way through the mid-20th century, when American society was beginning to change. It was moving from mostly a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant society to a much more diverse society as African-Americans left the plantations and moved to urban centers in the northern and eastern coast. Uh, the places that were beginning to change because of the influx of immigration from southern Europe and eastern Europe. The cities and the society was beginning to change. It was becoming more diverse. And this was the possibility that the church and American Christians could actually offer hospitality to those that were coming into these cities. Now, they looked different. 
The white Anglo-Saxon Protestant church was very well established in places like Chicago and New York and Baltimore and, and Cleveland and, and Detroit. But as the influx of new immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, as the influx of African-Americans from the Southern states, Mississippi, North Carolina, started moving into these urban centers, this was the time that there could be hospitality extended by the people who were already living there to the new immigrants. But that's not what happened. What happened instead was a hostility to the new immigrants and the new diversity that they were seeing in these places. And so instead of staying in the city and being hospitable to those newcomers, many of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant churches decided they didn't want to be in the city anymore. And they started moving out of the city and started establishing churches and schools and colleges and seminaries in suburban and rural areas. They began to leave urban neighborhoods because it was becoming too diverse. The hospitality was not extended to the newcomers, but instead there was a hostility and said, let's get out of here and move to the suburbs. Now, I noticed something interesting because the height of this white flight was actually in the 1940s, post-World War II, 1950s, 60s, and into the 1970s. So I started looking at church buildings that were built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I noticed something that many of the church buildings that were built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s had a sanctuary architecture that looked like this. How many of you have seen church buildings that look like this? You've got a little bit of the slanted roof and an arch on the side. Now, I was about 10 years old when my church in the 1970s dedicated a building that looked like this. I was 10 years old, and right off the bat I knew, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. This is a really, really bad idea. I don't know whose idea it was, but that person wasn't very smart. Why? It was a cold weather state. It was the middle of January. And the heating vents, of course, run along the ground. And they had the heat blasting. But where did all that hot air go? Right up into the rafters. And you literally had the frozen chosen on the ground and all that warm air up in the rafters. And as a 10-year-old, I knew this is really stupid. And as a 10-year-old, I'm thinking this. I'm thinking, whose idea was this? The senior pastor gets up. And he says, it was my idea to build the church building to look like this. And he explains why. He says, I want you to picture the entire church building turned upside down. What do you see? And he said, you're looking at the bottom of a big boat, aren't you? A really big ship. And where in the Bible do you read about a really big ship? Noah's Ark. Now think with me, at the height of white flight, as people are being hostile to the changing city, and running away from the city, moving to the suburbs, what symbolism there is, theological symbolism there is, when the people in the suburbs build church buildings that look like this. Is that hospitable? Or is it hostile to the world around them? Is it saying, we are safe in Noah's Ark. And as long as we're safe in Noah's Ark, we don't really care what happens to the world out there. They can be judged and destroyed by the flood and judgment of God. But as long as I'm safe in Noah's Ark, in fact, the way I'm going to feel safe on Noah's Ark and good about Noah's Ark is if the secular world out there has their secular art, we will have our Christian art. If the secular world out there has their secular schools, we will have our safe Christian schools. And if the secular world out there has secular music, we will have mediocre Christian music. So everything that is out there in the world, we will have a Christianized version of it. And we will be safe in Noah's Ark. 
But then what are you saying to the world? We don't care what goes on out there. What are you saying to the changes that are occurring? Whether that's because of immigration or great migration or all the changes that are occurring in society. We don't care what's going on out there. We just want to run away and hide and be safe in Noah's Ark. This became the approach that many churches took. It became the approach that many Christians took to see the world as a broken place and not wanting to bring healing into the world, not offering hospitality of hope and redemption into the world, but running away and hiding out in Noah's Ark from the world. So what is our response then? I said there were two responses, two of the responses that people could offer back in the time of Lamentations. One was to run away and hide, to go to Noah's Ark and hide out there. And the second is actually to offer up a lament. A lament that says, we know that this is the problem in our world and we need to respond in a biblical, theological way to the problems of the world. Not to run away and hide, but to actually seek God's heart for the broken, for the hurting, to actually understand God's heart that weeps for those that are hurting, that breaks for those who are broken. That's what lament is calling us to do. I'll offer one illustration as we um, talk about lament as an appropriate response. And that comes from the question of who wrote the book of Lamentation. This is an important question. Uh, we read Lamentations and Jeremiah back to back in the, in, uh, earlier on. Lamentations, as I said, was written in the context of the exile. Uh, the, the, the people who could read or write, uh, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, mostly the young men and, the, and those who were literate, they were all sent away into exile. You know this because of the story of Daniel, right? Remember Daniel and his friends? They were sent into exile. Why? Because they were young, probably literate, probably educated men who could potentially rebuild the nation of Israel. So they were taken away. So the only ones actually left in Jerusalem after the exile were the widows and the orphans. The very least of that society were the ones that were left behind because Babylon said there's no way they can rebuild that city with the widows and the orphans that were left behind. But what happens though is that when you read the book of Jeremiah and read the book of Lamentations, you realize that Lamentations had to be written by someone who was intellectual and who had some kind of writing skills. But if all of those were sent away, who's the candidate that's left to write the book of Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations? Well, it's credited to Jeremiah because Jeremiah was the, maybe the only literate person who was allowed to stay behind. Uh, Jeremiah was seen as to be on the side of the Babylonians. They said, he's on our side, let's let him stay. So historically speaking, the only candidate who could write the book of Jer uh, Lamentations is probably Jeremiah. Here's the problem though. If you read Jeremiah, we know Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah, and you read Lamentations, they are so starkly different in their style of writing. It's two different styles of writing. It's like Shakespeare and Kendrick Lamar. They're both great writers, by the way. Only one of them has a Pulitzer. They're both great writers, but they're probably not the same person, right? They're probably not the same person. It's that stark of a difference in the writing style of Jeremiah and Lamentations. What you get then in the stark contrast of Jeremiah Lamentations is recognizing that maybe Jeremiah's words are not filling the pages of Lamentations. Here's what happens. The exile occurs. Um, those that have been wounded the most, the women, the children, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick, the most marginalized of that society, 
they come out after all the prophets, priests, and the kings have been sent away. They come out to the town square, the city gate, and they start telling their stories. And Jeremiah, the only literate person left in that society, he begins to write down their story. He doesn't tell his story. He tells their story. If there's something that can be said about what we need in a broken world right now is that the privileged person like Jeremiah, the prophet who has the power, the privileged person who's got it all figured out, the person like Jeremiah, sometimes the Jeremiahs need to shut up and let the widows and the orphans speak. Sometimes the most educated, the most powerful and the most privileged needs to get out of the way so that the lament could rise up from those that have been hurt the most. If there is a way we move towards hospitality and reconciliation, it is to acknowledge that there are times that I might need to close my mouth and listen to the voices of those who are persecuted. There are times when I need to not speak so much and open my ears and listen to those that have been hurt, those that are struggling. Lamentations is one of the most feminine books of the Bible, opening our ears to the widows and the mothers and the, and the children that have been hurt the most in, this, in these difficult times. So are we going to be the people that are privileged because of our education, because of our status, who are willing to shut our mouths and open our ears so that that could be the place where hospitality occurs, where you are beginning to hear not your voice speaking, but the voices of those that have suffered the most in our society. I've had the great privilege for the last uh, three and a half years to teach at Stateville Correctional Center outside of Chicago. It's about a 45 minute to an hour drive outside of Chicago. Most of the residents or those incarcerated at Stateville, it's a max security prison. Most of those who live in Stateville are, or are incarcerated in Statesville are Chicago residents who were ended up in Statesville for long terms, many of them uh, life sentences. Uh, three and a half years ago when I began teaching at Statesville, um, I'm, you know, as you can already know, I'm a relatively short Asian guy, I'm about five, seven, seven and a half with a little bit more heels on. So I'm about five, seven, five, eight. So I go into this max security prison and I walk into a room, mostly African-American men, and they're all six foot Ten. I don't know. They were pretty tall. And, 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 they, and this is kind of an, a, an intimidating situation for me to walk into a prison as a short Asian guy trying to teach a, a group of prisoners. And again, this is max security. So we're not talking about one year or not. We're talking about 15 plus years uh, uh, and uh, 15 to life uh, sentences. Uh, so I needed to go into that space and establish my authority. I mean, wouldn't you do the same thing? You're walking into a, a very strange environment. You're feeling a little nervous. So I had to kind of assert my degrees, assert my position as a professor, assert my intellectual capacity. And so I spent the first several weeks making sure that these prisoners knew who was in charge of that classroom. I inadvertently created a hostile environment rather than a hospitable one. But I felt I needed to do that because I'm a short Asian guy confronted with these very large, scary-looking guys in prison. Now, that didn't last very long. And it didn't last very long because three and a half years ago, I was going through maybe the most difficult time in my life. Kind of everything that you can think of was falling apart. Every area of my life was going under some kind of turmoil. And about eight weeks into the, into the semester, I actually began to lose it in the classroom. I couldn't keep it together. I couldn't
shouldn't put on the facade of my strength, put on the facade of my, my, my power, my privilege. I couldn't do that anymore. And so I began to kind of begin to share a little bit more about my weaknesses. And in one class period, I remember vividly, I, I broke down. I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't actually be that strong person who had all the answers. And I will never forget this moment. Corzell Cole, south side of Chicago, born and bred, was the type of guy that you look at and say, yeah, that's the person that ends up in prison. It's about 6'4", 210 pounds, cut, tattoos, gold teeth. He's been there for a long time. And he's kind of a scary looking guy. But here's what happens. I'm breaking down. Corzell gets up out of his chair. He walks over to me and he whispers in my ear, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I really feel you need this. And he hugs me and he holds me. And I just blubber in his arms for several minutes. At that moment, there's no Ivy League educated professor who's tenured and a street gang thug who's in jail for life. It's just two people made in the image of God who desperately cry out to God together. That's what hospitality looks like. That's what the kingdom of God needs to look like. Just two people broken, crying out in a mutual lament. That's what the kingdom of God must begin to look like. My dear friends, you are going to be people of privilege. You are going to be people of power and education. I hope you will be the Jeremiah's of the world, but there are also moments in your life where you shut your mouth and listen to the voice of God through the very least of our brothers and our sisters, and that will create the family and household of God.